environmental, conversations, on creative arts, scholarship, and teaching. This This is is Ecocast. Ecocast. Hello and welcome to Ecocast, the official podcast of the Association for the Study of Literature and the Environment. I'm Lindsay Jolivet. And I am Brandon Golm. And thank you for joining us for another episode. Today, we're very excited to have Alina Kim joining us to discuss her new book, Making Peace with Nature, Ecological Encounters Along the Korean DMZ. Alina is a professor of anthropology and Asian American studies at UC Irvine. She was raised outside of NYC and currently lives in Long Beach, California. She has a BA from Brown University, where she studied English literature, and an MA and PhD from NYU, including a certificate in culture and media. Her first book, Adopted Territory, Transnational Korean Adoptees and the Politics of Belonging, came out in 2010 and received book awards from the Association for Asian Studies and the Association of Asian American Studies. She has co-edited and edited volume, Forces of Nature, New Perspectives on Korean Environments, with David Fedman and Albert Park, which is forthcoming from Cornell University Press, and has co-edited with Bridget Guarshi a series called Ecologies of War for Field Sites, the website of the Society for Cultural Anthropology. Thank you so much for joining us today, Alina. Thank you for having me. Yeah, really excited. All right, before we get started with the discussion of Alina's new book, I am going to introduce you all to a little bit of Korean folklore. (laughs) Today we're going to talk about the founder, the supposed founder of Korea, or the mythical founder of Korea, I suppose you could say. And the reason I'm going to talk about this particular folklore today is because the topic of Alina's book discusses the DMZ, which is the border between North and South Korea. And the founding myth is a piece of shared mythology that we can see connecting to both sides. So that will help perhaps contextualize some of the understanding of, you know, the separation in Korea. So uh, a very, very, very long time ago, (laughs) very, very long, (laughs) there was a great Lord in heaven and his son longed to live on earth interested in earthly things and wanted to experience living on earth. So he came down from above, we'll say, and founded the city of God and lived among the people and experienced what it was like to be on earth. One day, he was approached by a tiger and a bear who begged him to turn them into humans They really wanted to be human and experience what that was like. And in response to this plea, the god said that the bear and tiger had to live in a cave and eat only garlic and mugwort. And if they could do that, then he would turn them into humans. Now, the tiger gave up quite quickly and left. I was like, I don't want to do this anymore. And the bear was able to complete the challenge. So the god turned the bear into a human woman. Eventually, the god and the human bear woman (laughs) married and had a son together who is considered to be the founder of the first kingdom of Korea. Now, the place that a lot of this occurred is a certain mountain that's actually located in North Korea now. 
And so there is a sort of separation between this mythical founding place and South Korea, for example. And so it ties into the geography of a separation that we continue to experience today. Thank you for listening to my (laughs) folklore today. I hope some people were, you know, hearing this for the first time. It's a very well-known Korean story, of course, and you'll learn it if you study Korean or the Korean language or anything like that. Um, But we may have listeners who are not familiar. So Alina, let's jump into your book. Can you uh, introduce it to us generally? And you can tie it into folklore if you want. Feel free to comment on your your perceptions of the Tangun story. That's perfectly fine, too. Um, thank you so much. And I loved that you started with the myth of Tangun. It's um, very evocative. And I think it speaks to the sort of shamanistic origins of Korean cosmology in a way that does continue to resonate today. I don't talk about it in my book, but um, I think that culturally, you know, even if people consider it to be mere folklore or mere mythos, you know, it still kind of has that sort of um, alluring power to intrigue. I've noticed that Korean American and Korean diasporic artists and playwrights are drawing on the myth of Tangun quite a bit these days. I think in part because of all of our growing interest in nature, the natural world, you know, the state of the planet, trying to connect past, present, and future, etc. Anyway, but to um, to talk about my book, uh, yeah, I'm really happy to be here. Thank you so much for uh, your interest in this text. The book is essentially, you know, because I'm a cultural anthropologist, uh, you know, we do field work and with typically with humans, uh, but increasingly with uh, sort of in multi-species landscapes and and contexts. So this book is uh, very much in that vein. And uh, I think of my work as having been uh, sort of doing fieldwork, anthropological fieldwork or ethnographic fieldwork with people doing sort of natural science fieldwork. So it's kind of observing and participating in other people's fieldwork, as it were. But the book is essentially sort of making two major points. One is critiquing what has become a pretty dominant framing of the biodiversity of the Korean DMZ as what I call ecological exceptionalism. You know, it's being framed as ecologically exceptional. So um, the idea that one of the world's most heavily militarized borders is now this kind of haven of biodiversity is very inspiring for a lot of people in South Korea and uh, internationally. Uh, But one thing I do is I sort of critique the ways in which that symbolic appropriation of the biodiversity in the DMZ uh, helps us to ignore a couple of things. One is the ongoing state of war as still affecting the ecologies of the region. And um, secondly, that by, and and this is, um, you know, many of these discourses sort of conflate the ecology and the rare biodiversity there with peace. So it's as if because nature has quote unquote returned to the DMZ, uh, somehow it's symbolic of peace. And um, that I, that narrative, I argue, kind of uh, helps to naturalize the existence of the particular forms of political relations that we've become accustomed to. So there's so that's one one thing that I do in the book and contextualizing 
the interest in the uh, nature of the DMZ within South Korean uh, modern history. Really, the, the core of the book is an ethnographic exploration of the sort of multi-species landscapes of the DMZ area. I frame, so there are, there are three chapters that look at what I call um, alternative infrastructures, which is a way of looking at the um, sort of under-acknowledged relations that the DMZ's ecologies allow to exist between humans and non-humans. And so I have a chapter on ponds, I have a chapter on uh, migratory birds, and I have a chapter on landmines. And the reason I call them alternative infrastructures is because uh, the border is very much dominated by what we could call the infrastructure of division. So that's the military infrastructure of the TMZ fence itself, all the sort of uh, military battalions and barracks and training grounds and shooting ranges. In the last few decades, as the DMZ's biodiversity has been increasingly acknowledged and fetishized, especially in South Korea, there's been a kind of growth in um, tourism to the region and tourism development. So many of the people who live close to the DMZ in this in the border region, their interest in the development of DMZ tourism has much to do with modern infrastructures. So rather than the infrastructure of division, they are interested in you know, transportation infrastructure, in the infrastructures that will connect them to Seoul, like the megalopolis of Seoul, and the kind of economic development that the rest of the nation has experienced, but has largely left them behind. So in contrast to those two kinds of infrastructure, I became interested in these other sorts of networks of relations that um, are material and symbolic and affective. And those, those are the things that I focus on in terms of the ponds and the birds and the landmines. So much longer than, than an elevator pitch. <laughs> That's fine. But that in a nutshell. We never said how tall the building That's was. That's true. That's yeah. true. Right. Could you really? Yeah. I really lo- like, as I was kind of listening, I, like I loved that, that moment of like, um, you know, ponds, migratory patterns, and then landmark. Like, it, it's just like, you know, the first two, like I'm, I'm framing like, okay, like this kind of natural, natural. And then like this, the, like that, I love that, like shift, I guess, into, into landmines. But, um, and this is maybe, I, I guess, kind of, I don't know, jumping ahead or jumping too far back, but I'm curious how you, um, arrived at the, you know, like at those three things in particular, like what kind of led you towards, um, those specific viewpoints in that area? That's a great question. I mean, in a way, when I started the project, um, I knew that the biodiversity existed and I knew that there was an interest internationally in the DMZ. But, you know, it's still a very tightly controlled, militarized part of, you know, the border. Mm -hmm. And so, but when I went to South Korea, I realized that um, this is between 2000. I, I, I started my field work there in uh, 2011. It was during the Lee Myung-bak administration, and that president was very invested in being branded as the kind of eco-friendly president. And so the mm-hmm. DMZ for him was a major site for realizing that branding of South Korea as eco-friendly, of himself as the eco-friendly president. Even though it was a period really marked by 
heightened tensions between the two Koreas. So uh, the more distant any kind of detente or diplomacy between the two Koreas seem to be in actuality, the more he seemed to be investing in the DMZ as this site of you know, peace and nature or peace and life as it was mm-hmm. rebranded. And so that was, that was heartening. But at the same time, I was left with the challenge of how to do an ethnography of a site that is so large. I mean, it's you know, on the south, south, southern side, it's um, two kilometers wide, but it runs the whole width of the peninsula, which is, uh, you know, 248 kilometers and 155 miles. And it's a very diverse set of landscapes and ecosystems. So I really had to, uh, be, but because I was interested in, you know, the relationship, not, not, you know, I'm not just an ecologist, right, or a landscape ecologist. So it was really like, well, what are humans doing in these spaces? And uh, so I, I went with where I knew there was some kind of uh, social activity. And one space was on the western coast where a small NGO was doing very regular monitoring of the ecology in the Han River estuary, which is um, on, the, on the western side. So I worked with the DMZ Ecology Research Institute, which is this small NGO that entered into the civilian control zone area, which is just south of the DMZ, but, you know, the space that actually makes the DMZ the most heavily militarized space in the world, because that's where all the, as I mentioned earlier, the barracks and the training grounds and the the artillery. Mm -hmm. So they were doing research in this area. um, And one of their main focuses was these small irrigation ponds that farmers use Mm -hmm. uh, to irrigate their rice paddies. So in addition to all this military activity is agricultural activity. And, you know, the area is, um, mostly rice paddies, but because the military controls the space and land use, farmers are disallowed from building modern irrigation infrastructures. And uh, in lieu of that, they have uh, been using essentially a pre-modern system, which are these rainwater-fed ponds that become mini reservoirs from Mm. which they take water to... Uh, use in their rice paddies. But because they're small bodies of water, they're also highly biodiverse, right? So the DMZ Ecology Research Institute folks would study these ponds in the spring and summer to see, to monitor, you know, what are the various creatures that exist in these ponds. They also studied migratory birds, uh, which use different parts of the DMZ and the civilian control zone as wintering sites and also as breeding sites. So on near the Han River estuary, it's historically been a site for various cranes, red-crowned cranes, white-naped cranes, and some hooded cranes. It's been a wintering site for them. And historically, they have come between October and March uh, with their adolescent uh, young, I guess, uh, to feed on <laughs> uh, the leftover rice grains in the rice paddies after they've been threshed. So the uh, ecologists I worked with was, would count the cranes uh, every winter, and sadly, they're very much they were very much in decline. Uh, they've kind of leveled off recently. So I was kind of you know looking at different ways in which biodiversity was being monitored and being studied, and uh, the migratory birds. I ended up 
focusing on, though, were not the cranes, but actually what in English are known as black-faced spoonbills. And they're also endangered uh, species that use the western coast of Korea, but in particular these uninhabited islets and islands in uh, the Yellow Sea, which is a highly contested part of the border because those maritime borders were never agreed upon between North and South Korea at the end of the Korean War. So one chapter is about these migratory bird flyways, uh, which again, I sort of read as infrastructural. And in that case, I was um, I was working with Dr. Lee Gi Sup, who is a, a conservation biologist and ornithologist who also started two NGOs uh, for monitoring endangered cranes and also uh, water birds generally in South Korea. And so that was another kind of site where I was able to sort of locate the kinds of interactions and activities that I was interested in studying. And the landmines kind of constitute their own uh, sort of uh, category of investigation because, you know, one of the reasons that people cite for the DMZ being this rare space of biodiversity and kind of a de facto preservation area is because of these landmines. So there's uh, reportedly more than a million landmines, both within the DMZ and outside of the DMZ in the southern part, south of the DMZ. And so, you know, I'd attend a lot of these workshops and conferences and discussions about the DMZ where everyone would say, oh, it's because of the landmines. Uh, that you know the biodiversity is protected, but they would also um, say that in the in the case of some eventual unification between the two Koreas, that something would have to be done about the landmines, right? That have to be removed. But even though in all of these discourses and discussions, landmines were very present, and when you're in the in the DMZ area, you see mine signs everywhere, and there's all these mine fields that are cordoned off with barbed wire and such. Uh, mm-hmm. Even despite that, the ecologists that I worked with almost never talked about them. Like when you're actually in the space, no one ever really talked hmm. about them. I mean, you wouldn't go into a minefield. Like if you saw a minefield, you would not go there. But, um, <laughs> yeah. uh, but when you talk to local residents, particularly in the central part of uh, the Plains area, where I also uh, did some field work, they would talk about it a lot. They would talk about the mines because they lived with them. And uh, the histories of their villages were very much marked by the violence of uh, unexploded ordnance and military waste. So I became really struck by that sort of seeming contradiction between the ecologists not talking about them and the local people being very much affected by it. And so I started to think about what is is going on here with the mines being sort of the silent protectors of nature and yet also being these heinous, you know, weapons of war that continue to affect mm-hmm. people's livelihoods. Uh, I also love that, like, I mean, the idea of infrastructure in general, like when we when we talk or think about infrastructure, it, it's often the stuff that we don't really think about until it's we're kind of confronted with a problem with it. Um, and so just that last piece about like something like a landmine, like, yeah, I kind of want to think about those things if I'm in the area with them and the fact that people just kind of take for granted that, oh yeah, they're out there somewhere, but we're not really that concerned or, you know, like whatever is, I think is a really interesting 
parallel to that aspect of infrastructure as well. Yeah, and I, I, I sort of mm-hmm. developed that idea through this um, framework of rogue infrastructure, which that chapter focuses on, which, which is to say that, you know, mines in a lot of ways are, are uh, used to disrupt regular infrastructure, right? Much like, you know, mm. weapons of war are in general. Uh, but mm-hmm. the longer that they stay mm-hmm. in the ground, the more they become sort of infrastructural because, uh, you know, they don't go away, but, you know, they're there. They also kind of direct human behavior and movement, if you know that they're in the vicinity. Mm-hmm. Uh, but mm-hmm. there's a lot of ambiguity and indecisiveness in about what they're doing, whether they are still active, whether they are still dangerous. Uh, and so some of the local people would breach the barriers of these minefields because they're like, this is perfectly good land that we should be using. And, you know, the mines, you know, they probably aren't <laughs> But it, was, it also yeah. had a lot to do with the fact that uh, it was illegal for them to clear mines because they were considered to be, mm-hmm. considered to be military property that were essential for national security. So they would have to call... Um, the military in to clear the mines but because of a lack of manpower and technology the soldiers would typically just make it into a minefield instead of clearing the mines so because of that kind of tug of war around land use they would just end up demining the fields themselves and so one of the key informants of that article is the person i call mr lee whose father uh, died from a mine accident and yet, by the time he became an adult, he was clearing mines uh, because he had to for his own livelihood. And so he kind of helped me theorize this idea of mines as rogue infrastructure and um, how, they, how they sort of constrain human activity and yet can also enable it in other ways, particularly because in the 1970s, people were digging up mines and then selling them, selling the metal and the and the explosives on the black market to earn, you know, to earn money because this was before their agricultural activities were uh, profitable. And so, there, so I started to realize that these mines have so many, you know, different meanings, uses, and values. Yeah, I, I think that in Compared to the other chapters, I think all of them deal with the sort of duality you're talking about in the book about ecology and war. But I think, as you're saying, the mines, as an example, are maybe a way we don't usually think about ecology. But even as you're talking about the people who are involved with them, it's about this land usage. It's about, you know, the the agricultural or human relationship to the land and that how the structures of war even now are impacting that and the relationship the people have with their own ecology. I was wondering if you could say more just about how you have conceptualized ecology and war and the relationship between those two things, especially in Korea, obviously it's the different, a different situation than in some places because like the landmines are a part of a current force of like defense as you say it's a current war yeah um the relationship between ecologies and war and i i did uh include the information about that series in in my bio in the bio that Mm -hmm. i gave you uh 
mm-hmm. because um, it's definitely something that in anthropology is kind of gaining in interest. And I know that in environmental history, there's been quite a bit of writing on uh, war and landscape. So uh, historians looking at mm-hmm. battlefields, you know, or sort of uh, there's been some work on uh, military to wildlife spaces that have been, you know, military spaces that have been decommissioned and turned into wildlife areas. But in anthropology, uh, there's been less of a focus on um, the ways that military violence and ecologies are conceptualized. So that series really tried to hone in on that in a way that also defamiliarizes or denaturalizes what we, how we often uh, define war and ecology conceptually. So uh, I think, you know, war doesn't have to be just active combat, right? And likewise, ecologies sometimes, especially when we juxtapose war and ecology, like in the DMZ, ecology suddenly becomes really purified and kind of like, you know, um, mm-hmm. representing like the, the most ideal version of nature. So, uh, so that series, I think, you know, there's many, it's kind of, if I do say so myself, impressively global. <laughs> and it's, <laughs> so we have, you know, people uh, who are doing work in Haiti, South Lebanon, mm-hmm. you know, the West Bank, Colombia, uh, Korea, you know, Iraq, mm-hmm. just like, you know, lots of different places around the world, you know, the South Pacific. In a broader sense, I think, and I don't know if you were going to ask me about this later, but I do think in a broader sense, one thing that I want to bring to the discussion through the book, but also through that series, mm-hmm. is, you know, sort of a greater attention to militarization in our conceptions of climate crisis. And um, mm-hmm. I talk explicitly about the Anthropocene as largely, especially in the environmental humanities, as being really focused on industrialization and uh, capitalism, of course. But, you know, I think a big part, and it's not a separate category by any means, but a big part of the larger picture, I think, is also militarization, particularly in in the late 20th century to the present. So thinking about all of those formations and processes together, I think is can be really illuminating. Sadly, you know, as I was thinking through all of these things, and particularly with that series, uh, that online series, you know, Russia invaded Ukraine, and suddenly we have like Mm -hmm. another really present example. Of course, there are many ongoing wars, you know, that we could also name. But uh, given the amount of destruction taking place, you know, when we talk, you know, it's, it's just a really interesting moment right now to think about a turn away from fossil fuels, because of Russia's control over oil and gas Mm -hmm. production and distribution. But then at the same time, the just immense amounts of fossil fuels being burned just through the course of warfare, right? So uh, it's just, Mm -hmm. you know, all of these things I think have to be thought of together to a certain extent. And so one thing I do bring up in my epilogue is how to talk about these two kind of global processes of militarization and privatization under capital, you know, and to sort of think of it 
kind of spatially, right? So when we see the DMZ as being this site of rare biodiversity, it's not accidental, right? It's precisely because it's in this kind of narrow space that has emerged out of these two processes of militarization and capitalism. And it's not untouched by them, right? But it's strangely, it's not untouched by them, but it, it, it strangely emerges in relation to them. Mm-hmm. So yeah, so that's kind of my spiel. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's it's a very interesting <laughs> spiel. Yeah. I think it is. It is certainly a very poignant thing to bring up. I think in the context, as you say, of environmental communities, of focusing so much on industrialization and capitalism, both of which are huge and important to focus on, but which have this connection to militarization that absolutely will fit into this sort of sphere of discussing the Anthropocene and everything around it that we can add in. And then I'd love if you could add in the other element that then is this juxtaposition piece, because you also spend a lot of time conceptualizing peace and what that means, both in terms of academia and how it allows us to focus on some things other than militarization, for example, and also the way in which you're hinting at that it is a construct about the DMZ in Korea. Yeah, so the peace part is, you know, is really challenging for me, because when I started doing my fieldwork, as I mentioned, the state was really promoting the DMZ as the quote, unquote, peace and life zone, as a space for tourism Mm -hmm. development. Uh, largely because of the DMZ's association with biodiversity. But, you know, pretty much across the political political spectrum of people I was talking with, from like government bureaucrats to left-wing environmentalists, everyone was associating the DMZ with peace and life. And so I got confused because on the one hand, I found the whole peace discourse really cloying and sentimental and cheesy and not interesting. and utopian right and yet and then but then I was also confused because it wasn't just a right-wing or conservative thing it was also and and the and the left-wing environmental activists were drawing on a totally different tradition within the democratization movement of South Korea where Mm -hmm. um, peace and life had kind of emerged at a specific moment in that um, in that progressive politics so trying to unpack all of this helped me to understand two things. One was that I was kind of importing my own uh, allergic reaction to peace that was very much a sort of, you know, U.S.-centric sort of uh, intellectual bias around universalisms, around things that seemed sentimental. Uh, But also that peace, when you're situated in a country like South Korea that is not experienced ongoing war, but is existing within its shadow. Uh, And certainly if you're existing in a country that was experiencing violent uh, warfare, peace is important, right? And so there's a kind of privilege Mm -hmm. to poo-poo it because it's utopian or or idealistic. And so um, that just got me thinking about um, how to conceptualize peace and why peace, at least in anthropology, has not been well theorized. 
So I have a little section in my introduction about that, but I don't want to, that may be of less interest to your listeners. Um, but the, but the, the main way that I kind of tried to engage with this idea of peace was through a framework that one of my main key informants, uh, Kim Sung-ho, who's the director of this DMZ Ecology Research Institute. So he introduced me to his idea of what he called biological peace. Uh, which in the Korean is more like biological sciences piece. But he was really trying to mobilize the work he did in terms of the knowledge production of the DMZ's ecologies Mm -hmm. to think about reorienting our relationship to the natural world. So for him, biological peace is kind of a prerequisite to political peace, right? And so he would say, like, politicians, when they talk about peace, they're only talking about ideological things, right? You're only talking about Mm -hmm. politics in the realm of human politics and human concerns. But biological peace is about Mm -hmm. orienting ourselves to the organic world. And um, so that was really a crucial moment for me to both see that, you know, peace is really multiple in South Korea. It means many different things. And in the book, I kind of connect biological peace to uh, French philosopher Michel Serre's notion of the natural contract. So similar idea, you know, where um, how can we extend the notion of peace beyond the human, right? And to mm-hmm. not just dismiss it as being utopian, but to really see it as crucial to changing mm-hmm. uh, human relations with the earth or whatever you want to call it, you know, uh, and um, seeing that as not separate from human politically oriented peace, but as kind of inextricable, in, inextricable from it. Yeah. Well, I think that's one thing I've kind of been, been noticing throughout, um, your, your, this discussion today and your, in your answers in particular is, um, I mean, just that, that general idea of ecology, of that kind of intertwining of, of things being connected. And I think oftentimes, you know, we, 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 get hyper-focused on like the ecology of this or the ecology of that. And we, we forget about those things also coexist with each other. And, um, and so I, I think that that's, I mean, for me, that's, it's a, it's a really important takeaway that I'm, I'm like, Oh yeah, I have to remember that there's, there are other things in play here and that it can be really easy to kind of, um, you know, I think for all of us to get kind of lost in our own little bubbles and our own little kind of worldviews. And so to sometimes remember to step outside of those things and think about how they're, connecting with and, and relating to the, the other stuff surrounding them. Yeah. And I think that, you know, uh, I mean, there's been such a move in anthropology and other disciplines to dispense with the sort of enlightenment categories. Right. And, and some of it goes into like indigenous cosmopolitics, you know, uh, so what might seem new to us intellectually because, Oh, now we don't think in those categories anymore, those binaries, or what have you, mm-hmm. but you know, the idea that that's like a new thing is right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <Sure>. <laughs> Very provincial. Uh, and um, yet in Korea, in a place like Korea, right. Where, I mean, it's starting with the, the origin story of Tangun, where, mm-hmm. you know, it's totally about mixing up what's human, what's non-human, what's natural, what's cultural. So that kind of shamanistic worldview or, or cosmology uh, is very much at the basis of, you know, 
how Koreans imagine their uh, the, their nationhood. Yet, you know, as we all know, South Korea is also this hypermodern place that's mm-hmm. been very much influenced by Western modernity and, and U.S. empire. And so there's very interesting ways in which kind of a shamanistic worldview and a modernist mm-hmm. worldview uh, kind of coexist. And so I think for some of my interlocutors, mm-hmm. there's, you know, even though they're like Christian, right, there's, a, there's an opening yeah. <laughs> for thinking outside mm-hmm. of that uh, anthropocentric box. And um, yeah, so we'll, we shall see what happens. But yeah, I think trying to approach, yeah, I, and I also think ecologies is so such a common framework these days, but it's, it's becoming sort of inadequate to really describe all the multiple kinds of relations that are possible. Yeah, so I, I struggle with the word a little bit, you know. It's, it's very useful. But I also mm-hmm. wonder if there's, I don't know, <laughs> dot, dot, dot. <laughs> Something else. <laughs> yeah. yeah. yeah no, it's, I think, yeah. It's a, yeah. It is, I think, I think, I mean, like, it, we, we, we are about time to move on to end on a roll. But I think that is enough. I love that, like, the profound, like, almost, like, academically existential way that the conversation <laughs> just ended. Like, yeah, what, is, where, what are we doing? Where, what is the word we need? And, well, yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Well, yeah. Thank you so much. I mean, I, I, I feel like we're just, you know, scratching the surface as we, as we kind of wrap that up. Um, but yeah, it is time to, to end on a roll. So uh, I've got my digital die again here. I know all the listeners who love hearing the click, click, clack of the dice on the, the desk are not, you're going to hear it this time, but alas. Um, so I'm going to be uh, rolling a 12-sided die, um, and uh, I've got 12 questions, and whichever one comes up, we'll, uh, we'll ask you that question. So we have today number two. Um, kind, of, kind of a fitting question, actually. Um, what's an outdoor space that is important to you? Well, it's, you know, it's funny. It's, I was like, does, does any, it's not possible to get one, is it? <laughs> <laughs> anyway. It could be. Oh, no, yeah, because, oh, oh, you mean, because, no, I'm not, so I'm not rolling oh. for six-sided dice. Oh, I see. Yeah, so it's, it's, numbers are one oh, through 12, see, yeah, so yeah. it's a 12-sided die. Yeah. yeah. Oh, okay, yeah. sorry. Sorry to be, like, <laughs> skeptical, but. Oh no no! It's no. honestly yeah. it, uh, probably like a question that like our listeners have wondered about for a while because yeah, maybe I, not everyone is I familiar with role playing games that involve die. Yeah, I yeah. Think, perhaps. Um, okay, so yeah. um, a, a space that uh, an outdoor space that is important to me. Um, it actually became important during the first year of the pandemic, which was um, mm-hmm. right next to campus. Is um, this water treatment facility. <laughs> You're like, what? Uh, but um, it, it's, it's, um, it's basically a water treatment facility that is also um, part of this uh, wetland restoration project. So um, the, the San Joaquin Marsh, which are these restored wetlands that are part of the Irvine mm-hmm. Ranch Water District. So, uh, so it's connected mm-hmm. to this water treatment facility, but essentially there are these ponds, uh, that, um, have been constructed 
And so as I was writing my ponds chapter, I would walk around these ponds. And because they're ponds Mm. in Southern California, they are also uh, important habitats for migratory birds and and resident Mm -hmm. birds also. But, you know, they're not much to look at, but I really find it to be just delightful (laughs) because you can see all sorts of uh, birds. And I was walking around there and these grebes, I don't know if you're familiar with grebes, so these water birds, and um, there are these birders who are aiming their cameras at this pond. And uh, I was like, what are, you, what are you looking at? And they're like, oh, have you ever seen the grebes mate? Oh, have you ever seen them run on water? Hmm. So uh, these grebes, which are these you know, water birds, when they mate, you can look it up on YouTube. It's, it's really amazing. So they basically, there'll be a pair of them. And they just start like turning and looking at each other. And they're kind of like sort of getting ready and they're agreeing that, yeah, we're going to do this thing. And then they just stand up and run on top of the water really fast for like two meters. It's like, it's incredible. Yeah, it sounds incredible. (laughs) And that's part of their mating ritual. So uh, it was things like that during the lockdown and during the beginning of the pandemic. It was just really um, a way to uh, connect with other creatures who weren't experiencing Mm -hmm. the, you know, the human drama of Mm COVID-19. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. If I can find a... A good video. I will post it in the show notes. Yeah, that's And and the you know having the ponds connection with with my book as I was writing Mm -hmm. was really special. Yeah. Awesome. Cool. Well, thank you so much for sharing that. Yeah, we will include that with the rest of the information about you. So we would love to know how people can find you or find out more about your work. If you have a website or social media, we can include that along with YouTube for birds mm-hmm. at the end. <laughs> yeah, I just have my faculty web page, which I think you found. Uh, I'm not really mm-hmm. big on social media. So. That is fun. <laughs> yeah. And a little bit jealous, but yes. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. Awesome. So thank you so much. This is super cool. fun. And yeah, thank you. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, we really, really appreciate you you joining us today. And mm-hmm. uh, we appreciate everyone who's tuned in to listen to another episode of EcoCast. If you have an idea for an episode, you can reach out to us on our Twitter page at Asley underscore EcoCast. And uh, that has our link tree, which has the submission form and, and our email and all that kind of stuff. You can also email us directly at asley.ecocast at gmail.com. If you enjoyed listening to today's podcast, you can help us reach a larger audience by liking, sharing, and tweeting about today's show. Thank you all for listening, and we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye.